morning and welcome to your daily game face. I am Dr. Kim Landon and I'm back after a week away. Spontaneously forgot last week that I was going to be here <laughs> until the night before. Oh yeah, playing golf, you got and lunch in the Gillette. I, you know, I had a lot of stuff going yeah, on. Yeah, you had a lot week. of stuff going on. I did. And yeah. I'm here with Lou. I felt bad for you. <laughs> did you feel bad for <laughs> yeah. me? Yes. Yeah, so I apologize for, I had many people last week go, did you not have a podcast? Oh, good. So I was very happy to see that I was missed. And and I did miss being here and talking to all of you and doing that. But um, my uh, last week I had a, so very cool. I I, can, I have lots of plugs today that I can do. Okay. So I did a golf tournament that I do every year called, it's for, it's called the Into Action Recovery Golf Tournament. It's for the sober house, uh, the men's sober house uh, in Tewksbury, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. It raises money. They have a couple events a year, but this raised, you know, well over, I think, $20,000. Yep. Um, it was a great event, but I could only play half. And so, Jeez. okay, first of all, it was, it was raining. It started off raining. There was no call for the rain delay or anything. So it started off raining. I had to run at 1030. I had to like quick switch all my clothes off yep. in the parking lot and switch into my gear to go down to Gillette because I was doing something at Gillette with Patriots luncheon for another philanthropic thing. So mm. it's the luncheon that gives away all the awards that we raise all the money for uh, from doing from the, the Patriots foundation yeah. from the yeah. from the marathon. And so we awarded 25 at 26, 25, 26, um, great charities each got $10,000 and we'll get 25,000. Um, oh my God. And the, the, so last Wednesday was a big charity day for me. Did you <laughs> and at least I got get a the very nine. cool Jersey. I got an official oh, Jersey you? from the Patriots oh. with my name on it. Oh, nice. And I didn't bring it in, but I'll bring it in next week to show you. Cause I was running a little bit crazy today. Cause there was a big accident and there was other stuff going what on. Number? What? what number on New Jersey? Uh, number one. Number one. <laughs> Did you at least make nine holes or were you sprinting across the I golf course? I made nine holes. And not only did I make nine holes, I was on fire. And when I got back, my team had won. Oh, nice. So I was so excited. So I got to win money. Oh, nice. Even better. <laughs> so I won some money. Yep. Yay for me. Was it Charlbrook? Uh, no, Tewksbury Country Club. Tewksbury Country Club. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, but anyway, so into action recovery. And um, it was a great tournament, and it's lots of fun. And then, and then the Gillette Stadium, New England Patriots Foundation, Myra Craft MVP Award. So I had a very fun Wednesday. How was the lunch? Oh, lunch was great. Was it? So if anyone is from this area and they have ever been to Gillette Stadium, which, by the way, is having this huge new rebuild on one end of it, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. A new pass through of a mm -hmm. bridge. Um, new light, new uh, lighthouse. Yes, yeah. new lighthouse. That whole section is being redone. But the other side of the field, right on the field, is the Putnam Club, and so you enter through the Putnam Club, and it's a very large area that's on the field, but it's indoors, and the food is spectacular. <laughs> the food is always great when I go to Japan. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. The, it's not the concession stand food. It's the concession well, stand food isn't actually too bad either no it's not but yeah. this i had a lovely very large green salad not one of those things where they just take and put like a plop of salad on yep. big salad and then i had statler chicken with quinoa and wow. roasted vegetables and then they have a pastry chef there that did a dessert that i didn't eat <laughs> but <laughs> oh, it was okay. lovely yep so and um and it was very nice to see Robert and Josh Kraft, and it was lovely to be announced as one of the fundraisers for the New England Patriots, and it was great. It was, but I had to miss last week, and it, and it shot my mind on Tuesday night when I, oh yeah, yeah. texted you. I'm like, I forgot that I'm not going to be there tomorrow. Oops. That's all right. That's a day to day occurrence around here. Uh, so, but that's so unusual for me because you yeah, know I don't. It's like unusual for shows. you. Have you missed one? Uh, no. No, that was no. the first miss. So that yeah. was my first whoopsies. So I'm sorry to everyone that I missed. Anyway, so now this week we were supposed to have a guest, but I've moved her to next week. And um, we are going to have a guest. Her name is Michelle Michalizzi. And she's supposed to be on next week. Fingers crossed. So she's in Arizona. So there is a time delay, but she gets up at four in the morning anyway. So she wow. said it would be no problem. Um, but she's fantastic. She's uh She's a entrepreneur woman of the world, and she has this very cool 
she's a she's a jack of all trades in my mind because she does uh, first of all she's an amazing uh fitness physique bodybuilder um she has uh many wow. years of sobriety she she's like she walks all the walks and talks that i talk about like she's a leadership <laughs> yeah. uh, she's leader in, of women's um things and she's in human rights and she does uh a very interesting sort of job where she mixes social social um, interaction with journalism and and design, and so she's like an artist in a different way that you would think of. So it's very cool, yeah. and um, she's very inspiring. I grew up with her um, in my youth. She's a little bit a teeny little bit older than me by just a smidge, and she she always says, "I was a witness to your experience in gymnastics," and she's probably one of my biggest advocates of. <laughs> of knowing my, my journey to become an elite gymnast. So, and she, she always, well, good. This will be fun. Talks very interestingly about me because it's weird to hear it from an outsider point of view when I have my own internal thought process of what it was like to grow up as a gymnast in from teeny bit to older bit. And she watched and she was in the gym with me. So um, she's great. So she's going to be on next week and we're going to have lots of fun and we're talking about lots of cool things and, and um, so if people want to ask questions, certainly, and you can look her up online and it's Michelle Michelizzi and she's going to be with us next week. When's your book coming, by the way? When's my book coming out? Yeah. Um, God, you're like the fourth person this week to ask me that. <laughs> um, there are people with a lot less, a lot worse stories than yours who ha- have books out. So, I mean, y- your your story would actually be interesting <laughs> as opposed to like 90% of the books that are out there. Well, thank you. Yeah. I, I, I have been asked to write, as you know, many, I've been asked many times to write books and I have clients that ask me, can you write a book? And I just have to have time and you know, my schedule. Yeah. And when you know my schedule and you look at my schedule, I have barely time to think, let alone write. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So yeah. nonetheless, I, I, it's always on my mind. I've always, I have had fits and starts of a book. Um, I do get, so here's the psychology behind it. It's not a writer's block thing. It's more about in order to tell my story truthfully with all authenticity, it's going to hurt some people's feelings. And that is one of the things that keeps me from doing. I think that it's going to hurt people's feelings. Not that it really should, because I mean, I shouldn't say that. It's unfortunate that it would hurt people's feelings, but the truth and the authenticity of the story is what it is and therefore the people that it would hurt on some level are in massive denial over the experience that i would be telling and then it would cause probably i can just ignore them but it would cause them probably a lot of problems so it's like that that thing of like do we wait for someone to pass away and then write the book or do we write the book and wait till they pass away and then publish it or it's always in my mind and people of late have been really pushing me to write my story because as you just said, I have a very interesting story and it's colorful and um, has lots of, that is the second business. That is the second biggest reason why books are delayed is waiting for somebody to pass on. Yeah. (laughs) So you can tell a story. The first is writing isn't fun. So yeah, well the, well no, the writing, the writing I think would be easy for me, Mm -hmm. but it's the, I get blocked when I think about like, Oh, if I have to write that story, yeah. You know, it's kind of like when people say, so this is an interesting psychology piece, right? We always ask in psychology, like, tell us your first memory, you know, especially when people are first starting out in, in your practice, you know, that they come in, they're telling you their history. I will often ask, what's your first memory? That's a couple of reasons. I'd like to know, engage what's going on. How did they grow up? Do they remember? A lot of times when people don't remember yeah. their childhood, it means something. So, you know, there's like things you can find out. When I go through my first memories, and I have a, a very good memory, I compile a list of the memories because I can kind of go sequentially in my head. I can, and I run them all the time. And recently, people were asking me about, "Oh, what are your first memories?" And I was sharing them around the campfire last weekend um, about those things. And then it dawned on me—not that it really dawned on me for the first time, but it sort of hit more home because we were talking about writing a book, and the whole. It would be like I'd have a chapter on your first memories, and there's nothing good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But none of my memories. You know, people would be like, "Oh, I remember this thing with you know something wonderful," and yeah, no, I don't have that. <laughs> hmm. 
So, and of course, and that begets, you know, be gets to the question of like, well, is that why you became a psychologist? And ha, huh, ding, ding, ding. Because I knew very young, very, very young, like before I was 10. And definitely by the time I was 11, I knew exactly what I was going to do. I've always wanted to do this because it was my way of knowing how to help myself. But also I had a really, I had two really great mentors, which I think all kids need. Um, They need a resiliency person in their lives that they get their emotional yummies from, which I've talked about before. So my grandmother, um, my maternal grandmother was a superstar rock star to me. And um, other people in her life might not have thought the same because they were parented by her, but that's not the same for grandmas. Um, She was, she was my rock and my resiliency maker Mm -hmm. and she was amazing. And then um, I also had a uh, friend slash mentor in my It says early... something, doesn't it, that she could take that role? Is what? It says something that she was capable of taking that role. Yeah. In other words, that a person, yes, a grandparent could take, could become that role. Yes. It says there's a hole. Yes. For that role. Yes. Yeah. And it's, and, and, and that's an, it's unusual, I think, for the way that she did it because most, it's usually, it's usually not that, right? It's like you're saying, it's, yeah. an, it's a it's a coach, it's a teacher, it's something like that. So um, so she served a really wonderful place in my life. And then, uh, God rest her soul, she passed away. It will be 20 years coming up soon. Um, and then I had a very wonderful friend's mother who, I, I'm going to say it was secretively on the backside because yeah. she was very cognizant of my interesting story, That's mm-hmm. what we'll put, my interesting story of yep. how I was being raised and what I was doing in my gymnastics career and all these things. She tread very lightly so that I would not have any backlash, but she resilienced me up. Yes. And she, so I had really great uplifting women in my life. And so, and then there were other people too, but I think that's super important when you, when you're talking about, um, yeah when you come through an interesting story, as we keep calling it, when you come through an interesting story like mine, if you don't have people around you, it can be very difficult. So I did go into psychology for sports because I had a sports psychologist, Dr. Joe Masmo, who is still alive, I think, but he was getting up there in years, um, who was my inspiration for doing sports psych. And because it was unusual back in the seventies to have someone in that. And he was a forerunner in the field back in the 1970s when I was coming up through in the eighties. And, um, and he was a mentor to me for quite some time and, um, has done beautiful writing. And a lot of my work was based on hmm. his inspiration and his caretaking of me while I was a gymnast in, in his moments when he was around me. So, um, lots of really good people, but that's what, that's what, when you have a really interesting story, yeah, you need people around you to keep you sane. <laughs> I do like that. Yeah. You like how I'm dancing. How does, um, when you ask your first memories, how far do they generally go back? Well, how how young can you retain memories? So, so typically kid, so I'm going to give you a little story of like how this works. So zero to two years old, roughly, right? Give or take a few months, what? zero to two years old, you have oh. memories, but they become, um, they, you, you have infant amnesia that happens after two years old. Oh, thank so God. All the body and <laughs> all the body and yeah. the mind and the neural networks remember the, the emotion, the physical or, you know, so whatever's happened, but the memory itself of like the telling of a story doesn't come out. Okay. You won't be able to pull for that necessarily. You will see it sometimes behaviorally. You can make guesses and assumptions, especially when you're doing kid child therapy. You can, you know, say you have a four-year-old, clearly they're not old enough to have like a story built yet, but they have enough time under the belt. We can often tell sad, sad story. We, we can often tell if someone's been like sexually abused or something has bad has happened to the child, even though they can't verbalize it when they're three or four years old, because they're acting out on it, but they don't have. The yeah. So it's story. there, but you can't recall it. Right. Because I'm guessing infants and young kids receive a lot of quote unquote trauma whether it's actual trauma. Now, I mean, they're scared quite often. They're right. Well, yeah. they're always, they're sponges yeah. and people, you know, that whole, that whole misnomer of, Oh, kids, you know, don't worry about it. They don't know anything. Kids know everything. Yeah. They're sponge. They learn and hear and see, and they're learning all the time. And they, when you say, Oh, they don't know and understand, they don't understand maybe at the adult level, but they understand that something, if it's bad, they know it's bad. If it's good, they yep. know it's good. They know the difference. So they're storing it. Now, after we get past the two and a half year mark, roughly, usually the earliest memories I get are around three. 
three years old and up. So some people can go all the way back to three. I can go back to three. I can't imagine. I can't even imagine. <laughs> and then, but many people go to five, six. Yeah, that's about that's roughly, about the time I would have guessed. Yeah, right. But I can, I can go back to three. I can actually go back further in my head. But it's one of those things where I don't know if it's my memory or if it's the memory that someone told me and I've been able to superimpose. So I always that memory always sits off in the side for me. Yeah. But my three year old memory definitely has spot on because it's been something I've I just remember. Wow. Yes. No, I can't. go. But back most people don't have that. Most people go. I mean, they can go to three, but it's usually like four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I have several clients who are, they do have PTSD from childhood and their trauma um, uh, has made it so that when we go back and I say, well, what happened in childhood? I, there is no memory. Like they don't have memories of pretty much anything. Yeah. And it's frustrating for them because they know that that's implying that they've suppressed and repressed something. And I don't do hypnosis and I don't do any kind of EMDR, which is the biofeedback and, and all of that stuff. So, and I, uh, you know, obviously psychologists and psychiatry is very careful not to obviously plant any kind of information because we don't do that. It's, you know, we, we don't lead the, lead the witness kind of thing. Um, so uh, sometimes it's just better, you know, for some people just to let it sit. Now I have one client that insisted on going and doing hypnotherapy, which was fine. They got nothing out of it in terms of like any big thing that came out of their early youth. So, I mean, it just really, it, it really depends on how desperately you want to go back and find out. But it's frustrating for some people because they really want to know those time periods. And they just have no recollection. I don't, I don't want to derail this, but you just brought up the subject. You're so going to derail so I have it. To go. Here it comes. I love the idea of hypnosis. So I yeah. wanted your thoughts on it. As you know, I did the podcast with the psychiatrist who yes. was uh, into hypnosis. Yes. And did work for police and things like that and did a lot of work. And I was just fascinated that someone in the profession was dealing in hypnosis. I always thought hypnosis was kind of a card show type of type of thing, but well, so, it has so, some legitimate it has legitimate usage. And so hypnosis is so hypnosis that you see on TV or that you see like, you know, I'm going to put you in a trance and you're going to quack like a duck and yeah. I'm going to count back. Right. That's the card trick. Right. So that's whatever it, it sometimes may be working somebody might set it up whatever but so true to the form of our our profession so hypnosis hypnosis and hypnotherapy is basically putting you into a meditative state you're not knocked out you're not sleeping yep. you're not right you're aware but you're just going into a deeper level of you know it's like having anesthesia without the anesthesia right so you're because you're you're actively there but um it's very specific. It won't work on some people because of, for a variety of reasons. Oh, it, well, tell me the reasons because I have two stories because I actually did it because I was so curious and I wanted to get try to get hypnotized. And doing a show at another station, I had a hypnotist on and he couldn't hypnotize me. He hypnotized my partner. It was funny as hell, yeah, by the way, sure. because he, he gave him the suggestion that everyone in the room had massive body odor. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, and, and we were doing the show and doing the interview together, and you just could see the reaction. It was funny as hell. But I couldn't be hypnotized. So what are the reasons people can't be hypnotized? So typically the, the top reasons are that the person's not suggestible. You, you really need to be someone who's free and flexible and suggestible easily. Like, yeah. you know, follow, Open to it. follow the, yeah. the bouncing ball, and mm -hmm. it will lead you to the path, and you're going to be trusting of it, and so on and so forth. So most people that have a suspiciousness about them which is most people, yeah. you know, that they, they don't try, right? they will not easily go under the meditative state. Um, and then sometimes um, it's a defense mechanism of letting go and allowing someone to get to the vulnerable space that you might get into because you don't know what really will come out. And yep. you also might have guarding, you might knowingly be guarding information that you don't want to come out and you don't know if it actually will work. So you just don't go there because yeah. you fight it in your body, your mind and your body don't allow for it to happen. Yep. So usually that's why. So many, there's many more people who are not able to be hypnotized than there are able to be. The therapist was a little bit more, um, I don't know if you're successful or not, because I don't know what the expectation was. What I felt was I was there and I was conscious, but I remember at one point when he was testing my state, he was just like, lift, lift your index finger on mm -hmm. your right hand. And I did. 
you know, and it's like, it was kind of funny because I didn't really fight it, but I was conscious of it and I go, Oh yeah, I'm lifting my finger. Look at that. You know, but it was, I don't know. I don't know whether it was successful or not because I don't know what it's supposed to be, what you're supposed to feel. But I think it, it, so when it's, so when you, so if you ha say, if you have someone like we're just talking about, go back to the topic of, you know, going back to infant memories or going back to early childhood memories, if you're looking for something specific, usually when you're going into a, a hypnotherapy session, you're going in with the intent of we're going back to look at this time frame. We're definitely, you know, so when a hypnotherapist, now I don't do hypnotherapy, but I've practiced, you know, been in, in uh, continuing ed courses that oh, we've done really? it, and, you know, so that I oh, can do. Yeah. So what they do is you go back and you start setting the scene because you get, you've been given information. Like you told me when you were a child, you would be in this room. The room is green. The, you know, you have this rocking chair that you said you would sit in and you had a teddy bear can you see the teddy bear? Like, so you start yep. setting the scene and from the information that's already been given to you by the person. So you're not setting and leading. And then you say, you know, now you're in the room. How does it feel? You know, once you've gotten them into the meditative state and then it gets into that to see if the person can start saying, oh, you know. And the premise is we retain a lot more than we have access to. Right. That so was, we, so yeah. that goes back to the infant amnesia. We yeah. store all of our information I mean, we only use 10, roughly 10% of our brain, right? So, but it's there, it's all in there. So neurologically, the neural pathways remember everything. So if you were, like I have a client who was adopted and they were adopted from Romania and they weren't adopted until they were five. And she um, had a very rough upbringing all the way up to five. She doesn't remember a lot about her upbringing, but in the records that came with her, it tells a story of why she probably wouldn't remember. But once she came to the United States and had her, her adoptive parents, her life changed and became very um, nurturing and flourished, but she was in deprivation in her first years of life. Mm -hmm. So you can, you could see what was going on in her neural center because she was in conflict a lot between, you know, protecting herself for survival versus she already, yep had the ability to have the survival because it was now she was in a very loving nurturing home versus her growing up years which is zero to six essentially is your imprinting years and that's where you make that's you, we make it or break it at zero to six everything yep. is set in those times for our guilt shame um initiative inferiority self-esteem all those things trust mistrust so everything's set in, in motion there and so when you are in a deprived environment, nurturing coming up through, and then you move over into a non-deprived, your neural pathways remember that and they go into survival mode. So you're always going to be a little mistrusting. Yeah. You're always going to have that. Now that doesn't mean that you can't fix that. That's yeah. what therapy is for. So no pills can fix that. People always ask me, what pill can I take? Stop with the pills. Let's go and do the work. Right. So it's about really going back and saying, and we don't have to uncover everything that happened in Romania. What we have to know is going into the orphanage on a daily and then going to a foster home that had 11 kids in it that really wasn't yeah. nurturing. Then going back to the orphanage during the day, like school, there was, it was just too much of neglect. Right. Right. So the, the mind remembers that. So even if you have someone that's not in that situation, if you're an emotional neglect, as an example, growing up in the first few years, you're, you're, neural pathways will remember that in your emotional center of your brain, which is the limbic system, the one that says flight, uh, fight or flight, the one that keeps you grounded, the one that keeps you regulated emotionally, the thing that keeps your central nervous system calm or not, all of that is remembered there. So you may not remember like, oh, I feel like I've had that experience before. You just won't be able to tell what it was, but you'll have that feeling. It will yeah. come up in you. It's kind of like the deja vu thing. Yeah. And that awareness is helpful in coping with it as opposed to having a vague triggered feeling right. that might be present. You understand that what's coming is from, from the past and you can deal with it on that level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, It's not an immediate present threat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's kind and so when people are anxious, for instance, they'll say, I have no idea why I'm anxious. Yeah. It's, it's to that point yeah. of, oh, something is there's something yeah. there. And when people say it's not, it's, there's nothing. I don't think of anything. First of all, we are thinking beings all the time, hundred percent of the time. So that's not true. 
And there's always something. It doesn't have to be something that's happening in the moment. It could be something that's coming, something that was in the past, like people with death dates, right? If there's an anniversary coming, you might not be thinking about like, oh, a month from now, there's an anniversary date of like someone passing. But your mind and your body are gearing up in it. And if it was important to you and it was meaningful to you, it will already start ahead of you to gear up for that. It's funny. I was thinking of that when you mentioned that your grandmother had been, her death was 20 years ago that she pulled it out. It's like, I don't normally carry that type of specific information, which is kind of funny. I just, it's, it's weird, but it was interesting that you had that so specifically your Mm -hmm. grandmother's death date. Yes. Yeah. But you know me, I'm very specific. Yeah. No, you are. But I, I just, as that came out, it was like kind of, it's because at a certain age, you know, I'm older than you, but at a certain age, things kind of meld together. You don't think in terms of, you know, specific years and things like that. I get in trouble for that all the time. You don't remember when that was? I guess, no, I don't remember when that was. I remember it happened, but I couldn't tell you. But see, that's where it gets into the gender thing. Women are like vaults yeah. and men. Eh. But this uh, psychiatrist, when he was doing work for, it was in New Jersey and he was doing uh, work for police in s- several court cases yes. including the abduction from a mall in new jersey and under hypnosis this gentleman brought back he'd walked by a car and he had noticed the car to the point where that might have been involved where he went to the police to say i remember seeing this and i remember it caught my eye but i don't remember anything else about it and they put him under hypnosis he came up with a license yeah and that happens and you are just taking in so much stimulus and i guess we record it all the we premise record, of all this is we record everything. it all just a matter of accessing right Right. So it's interesting because when we talk about, because this is the forensic psychology piece, right? That um, I, I'm, I have so many things in my head about it. So when we're eyewitnesses, for instance, when you're an eyewitness to something happening, when people typically, now this is a general generalized thing, when people will remember, like a police officer comes up to you and says, tell me the details. And a person can be like, oh, they were wearing a red coat and black boots and they had a hat and it said this and and they have a lot of details. The likelihood is that they're wrong. Yeah. Right. And the less amount of details, the one person that has like they had a black cap on with an emblem on it. And I think they were wearing jeans and a white shirt. And that's all that person is more likely to be almost spot on or spot on than the one that goes into all the details and all the details and all the details, because it's just the way our brain, we try so hard to remember. And then all of a sudden we start putting in and embellishing on top of it because we think we saw, or we've heard other people talk about what they saw. Yeah. The brain finishes the unknown, right? The brain fills in your gaps with, you know, from stuff that it's pulled or, or it already knows, you know, we talk with Ron about paranormal. I think that happens a lot where right. there's an unknown or you see Christ's face in a potato chip. That, that's your brain filling in. Filling in the spaces. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Or yeah. people like, well, right. So we, we always are trying to fill in <coughs> what we don't understand as well. Yeah. Or that we and faces are very important to us. Our, yes. our mind is very focused on faces. Children read you. That's how right. they know everything. It's it, primarily they, they do that. That's survival technique. And children make very good witnesses. Oh, do they? Because they are very detail oriented because the, you know, as you get older, we as adults get socially normed into not paying attention to a lot of things unless you're doing like what I do for a living yep. and you're paying attention to everything. Or if you're like a police officer or someone that's doing something to be on top of all things nonverbal, verbal, right. you know, assessing situations. But little kids are constantly assessing and can tell you way more details than an adult being in the room at the same time. And the, th- those details are more, in that case, little kids are more accurate. Plus because, kids focus better than we right. do, don't, don't yeah, they? Well, I mean, we're constantly, we're, we're multitasking we're in multitasking, our mind. multitasking, whereas kids are, yeah. you know, if something's going on, they're definitely paying attention to yeah. it. Even if they're playing with something, they're listening. And you, you don't think that they're listening, but they hear yeah. everything. Yeah, because they're not thinking what's going on at work or what's right. going well, on next week. They don't have the other distractors in their head yeah, that right. are like worrying them, right? Yeah. The extra, the meta worry. That comes later. Yeah. <laughs> that comes Thank later. Yeah. That gets beaded until later, you yeah. know? Oh, goodness. Um, so, but... So, so what if I tell you my first memory? Oh, oh. do you do you want to tell me your first memory? Yeah, because it's weird that I carry this memory. I don't know why I carry this How memory. How old were you? I'm going to say five. Okay. You don't know, though, do you? Well... It's a guess. Based on the context, I'm guessing five. Because it was going to... There was 
before I went into school, our school, and I went to the, I went literally to a two-room schoolhouse in mm -hmm. Rocks Village in Massachusetts. There were two classes in each grade. I mean, two grades in each class. So it was a two-room schoolhouse, basically, little red schoolhouse. And before we went there, there was a day when they did physicals. And they had all, all us kids in there, and there was the, you know, the meat butcher paper down on the floor yep. and walking us around in our underwear and doing physicals for, you yep. know, some preschool entrance or something yep. like that. And that's about the earliest thing I can remember. Wow. Yeah. And do you have any feeling attached to it or is just the memory? No, I mean, not like panic or anything like that. It was just kind of weird. It was just kind of new and different. And, you know, I don't know why that one sticks as hard as it does. It's so funny that you mentioned that because I have a memory of the, those little preschool entrance exams. I don't even think that they do those anymore. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm, I'm guessing sure that they yeah. don't because yeah. I actually know that they don't. Um, but it was the, you know, you'd sit down and you'd do the hearing test and the, you know, look through the, you don't do that anymore. Yeah. yeah. No, no. God, no. This it's is like, that's, you yeah, know, it this was a like, hundred years ago. And you yeah. had to, I remember it being like, you had to pass this. I must've been like four, right? You had to pass this. And like, yeah. what? Like, now I look back thinking, what was I passing? I don't understand. And the whole idea now, like, the context I could, I could of it. I hear and see something? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, 60 kids walking around in their underwear. Yeah. You know, like I said, on the butcher paper, through the, or the examination paper. Oh, it is. That's a, that's a really creepy memory. But it was, yeah, but no, it's not creepy because. Well, it's well, creepy in like the fact that, you know, you're like. In today's. In, here's all these little kids walking around on the butcher paper. <laughs> well, it's, I, I know they're using the exam rooms and stuff like that, but that's yeah. basically what it is. It's the parchment paper. Parchment paper. Or the, yeah, I know what you meant, though. Yeah. It's just kind of funny. Yeah. It made me think of Silence of the Lambs, which in a whole different track. And I have another memory of my dog eating my Fruit Loops Oh. when I was a kid. Wow. I put it down on the end table and came back, and the dog was eating my Fruit Loops. Butch. <laughs> Damn dog. Damn dog. Damn dog. <laughs> yep. Um, well, okay. So, so moving into this next piece that I was going to talk about is that, did you know that this is Men's Health Month? Oh, I did not. Oh, it is. See? Men's Health Month, June. If I had been here last week, I would have talked about it. <laughs> so um, I have a question for you. Yes. What do you think are a couple of, or one of, the top things that really are men's health issues? Uh, obesity. Okay. So obesity, yeah. which is like half of this country yep okay sleep so, deprivation sleep deprivation yeah what else um stress anxiety okay yeah uh, specific enough i guess yeah yeah we you looking for more specific oh i just was looking to see if you knew answers to okay <laughs> <laughs> it was it's a more broad question so if anyone out there is listening um besides kate who's not a guy um <laughs> um uh you can certainly put up your thoughts about like what you think but so there's a whole bunch of things, right? Obviously, men's health issues are work, stress, stress um, that leads to food, poor relational food choices. But that actually starts in youth, right? Yep. So that stuff starts in youth. Um, oh, there's, oh, traumas. Thank you. Eric is joining from Sweden. Good morning, oh, Eric. Hi, Eric. Um, traumas and John just says hello. So there's nothing there from John. <laughs> um, but so when so men contemporarily what what i think is interesting is not only do you have the stress and the work and family and friends and all those things one of the biggest men's health issue right now is because of the pandemic there's the social isolation now it's for women as well but women tend to be more connected mm -hmm. but men have been much more disconnected in terms of their jobs because they um a lot of the companies, you know, women's companies, women's companies, com companies have brought people back. Yeah. But by and large, there's a little trend and it's getting more and more that there's a trend for men have much more social isolation and be struggling to get back into the swing of things or to be able to connect, which is making them at higher risk for um, anxiety, depression and suicide. Hmm. So, you know, we don't talk about suicide very often on my show, but it's, um, you know, it's an important topic because there's so many, um, we just take the demographic of veterans. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, 20, 22 a day, like there's a, there's the whole slogan about 22 veterans a day are committing suicide. Right. So we have that, we have the demographic of, 
of your mainstream bell curve norm of men who have stress and anxiety and eating issues and family and money issues and the pandemic has taken a toll. So all these pieces are putting people in the male category at a higher risk for more heart disease, more high blood pressure, more um, agitation, anger and sadness, which is also the reason why the one of the reasons why the opiate crisis in Massachusetts over the pandemic went up so high and we're at one of the highest rates in the country, Massachusetts is unfortunately, and also like the drinking and other activities that, you know, are socially isolating, but make you feel good in the moment, but then not. Um, And then going back to what Eric was saying about um, traumas, traumas absolutely drive, you know, childhood traumas and teen traumas of some sort drive all kinds of different men's health issues. You know, if you've lost a parent at an early age, um, if you've had, you know, even things that you wouldn't think are really traumatic to maybe us, but something that in your own perception is a trauma that changes things. Um, And what happens is the neurochemistry in the brain changes along with it. So um, when you're your age and you're getting up, it's basically after your age of like 30, 35 men, I, you probably don't know this, but you know how women have menopause, Mm -hmm. men have andropause and we don't, we don't, do any big cultural push on there's medications for it and there's a, but there are because that's what Levitra and Viagra and they're treating andropause and, and that's one the erectile dysfunction piece of andropause is that. So they're treating that, but yeah. they're not treating the emotional, social, environmental pieces of that that are contributing to the um, androgen, the progesterone and the testosterone change in the body that actually makes a man moody on a monthly cycle makes a man have more agitation or anxiety makes really? him more short-tempered right we See, have monthly you cycles something new from me every I week did. i was aware of this to some extent but i didn't know it went down to monthly cycles yes um so yeah so it's kind of so how do i i always have a how do i figure out my cycle comments about women i'm like oh well <laughs> men have it too how do i figure out my cycle <laughs> Well, and that's, and so, and people ask me that it's, it's not quite, it's not like a one-to-one comparison to females in that way. It's very heavily related to those are factors of like, what are the stressors on the person? How well, and how well have they managed them in the past? What's their resiliency level? Do they have outlets that are healthy versus ones that are not? Like if you obviously are, goes back to, are you exercising? Are you eating clean? Are you Mm -hmm. having good relationals, relations with other people, friends, partners, business people, your loved ones, all that. So those are all protective factors. Now that's a perfect world. So, but men go through andropause and it, and, and it, and that lasts for a really long time. Um, it can go, it can start early and go much later in life, but it's in that way, it's not the same as, as yeah. menopause. And that's why you see younger and younger men having um, erectile dysfunction. It used to be, you know, men and 50 and up or 60 and up and whatever you see now, I see much, much more of that in people late twenties, early thirties coming in. Mm. And it's not because there's something physically medically wrong with the person, but it's all of a sudden they've had a drop in their testosterone or something has changed biochemically in their um, system due to stress. You have an over dump of adrenaline and cortisol all the time, or you're at a high blood pressure rate all the time. Well, what is that yeah. going to do? It's going to change your body chemistry and your endocrine system and your endocrine system runs your hormones. So, I mean, it's, I think it's super important to bring to the attention of men being men's health month, because you too have, mm. have these things that are um, not being addressed and there's, it's not, there's not a big pharma in it. There's not big money in it. There's nothing. So it's right. not addressed, but it's out there. And so when men feel kind of blah or down or whatever, it's kind of, bypassed and so i'm saying no there's a reason for it and so if you are a listener and you are a guy you should definitely say oh what can i do about that you know exercise get good sleep it's all the basic hygiene things that we would say for for females good sleep eating clean good exercise making sure you have good connections with someone have a life coach have a therapist have somebody that you can vent to and bounce stuff off of um certainly men are avoiders of doctors (laughs) Yeah. So having a good blood panel done, you know, in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, just to make sure all the things are in working order. Um, 
and here's my tip for people with the I see blood panels all the time come in and the primary care physician, God love them all, will often, you know, you'll get your range and you'll see it. And the line will be like right on the edge or right on the edge of the other side of like the high or the low edge of something. But because it's in the range, the doctor will more often than not say everything's fine. Yep. But the problem with it is, is that if you don't like, cause now, because I do holistic naturopathy, right? Um, if you look at a combination of lines that are right on those cusps or just over or just under, and you see certain patterns that actually is indicative of things that are going not so well. Yeah. Um, so get your blood panels done, find out, you know, if like maybe you have not enough vitamin D, which if you live in the Northeast, you don't. Yeah. So, or, you know, maybe you're taking too much vitamin K in and you have lots of bruising and you didn't know that you were bruising because of the vitamin K, but you wouldn't know that until you saw your blood panel, mm -hmm. um, which happens for people because they take all these, you know, medicines. So my, my biggest takeaway for how to treat any kind of imbalance right now, if you're not even doing your blood panels is make sure you take a good complex B uh, vitamin so b12 b6 b4 so b complex and because that's neurogenerative mm -hmm. so it keeps the brain sort of moving and fluid and it keeps everything building up and going so um and, and then of course getting to your doctor and i i highly recommend men going to if you're afraid of your primary care and all those things i would be too sometimes <laughs> i would go to a naturopath because a naturopath is much find one that's actually board certified with the medical association the ama and and or the apa in the united states or wherever you're living and and get someone that actually knows both medicine and the naturopathy together so they can put the picture together and not just be like oh throw a pill at something because that's not what's going to happen and fix it we really need to say how do we come at this from a different direction because when you do that you can actually it's like menopause we can we can do different things naturally to make it balanced yeah. right so your testosterone's off or your progesterone's off or your estrogen's off there's things in your environment that you can do to make it better but you have to be aware of it first. So this is like a PSA announcement for mm -hmm. Men's Health Month that, you know, you you have a lot of control over things that you don't even realize that are going on. Can they order blood panels? You, you can, you can, you can just ask your, you can go to your primary care and order it, or you can pay, well, insurance will pay for it that way. But you can also get one on your own. If you go oh. to any, any like Quest Diagnostics and pay a hundred bucks, you can do a full big, um, blood panel like your regular doctor's office will usually just run your regular panel you and if you want your extras you want to check you know your t4 your thyroid and all the extra things that you might want to check your iron levels that they don't often run you can go and pay extra for that or you can ask your primary care if you have if you have a good connection with your primary care they will do it for you and they will they'll ask you why yeah but you should do that everyone should be checking their a1c men should be checking their a1c which is your your um, sugar levels over the past month so that you know where your range is because people don't track that. So you might not know that your metabolism changes when you get older and that will change the way that you're sugar dumping and that you're having any kind of movement on your pancreas and your cortisol levels are affecting your adrenaline, which when that happens and you have stress, it deteriorates yeah. your musculature and your ability to, you know, I have, I have guys that are like training really hard and they're building muscle <clears throat> and then all of a sudden they go to this plateau and it's not working. So we do a stress assessment because they can't build the muscle they were building because we figured out for some of these people that too much stress, too much cortisol dump. So it's deteriorating their ability to build the muscle because the stress is getting in the way. It's working the against them. Yeah. 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 Right. And, and so just, just tips that I think guys just don't think about and, anecdotally, I just hear this all the time when I bring it up in my sessions with men that are like, I'm struggling, I'm tired, I'm this and that. I think general medicine and general psych would be like, oh, well, you know, get more sleep or, or take, you know, Unisom or take Ambien or, but it's really, there's a lot more going on. And I think you have to look at a full picture. So really assess yourself. If you're not wanting to go to someone like me, you know, find, there's some really good self-assessments online. If you go to WebMD and you look up, you know, you know, your health and wellness. And there's some other places that you can go to. I'm not a big fan of going to Dr. Google, but because you can, <laughs> yeah. every time you go to Dr. Google, you're going to end up dead at the end of the day because exactly. it yeah. tells you that you're dying. Yep. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, you know, but you're not, but you know, that little spot that you had now is like the worst tumor in the world that's, you know, gone yep. to your brain and it's actually, oh, it was a drop of like ketchup.
And the ants are usually with like cortisol, which is an important predator for men, especially, I think, is that you, your mental reactions and your approach to things is so important because that's the way you control cortisol. It's not a pill. It's not even exercise doesn't even do it. It's how you deal with your stressors on a on an hour to hour basis. Right. It's it's how much you're it's how much you're regulating your emotional state. Mm -hmm. So um okay, visual. So if people aren't watching, you have to imagine this. So you have a you have a polyvagal nerve. I've talked about this before. Your polyvagal nerve is it runs from your brain to your gut, but your polyvagal nerve is in your neck, like right here. Right. And so I'm like looking at my sides. So in what it does is it regulates your emotional range. It regulates a lot of things, but it regulates or dysregulates your emotional range. And in doing that, it has control over your central nervous system, your endocrine system, which is your hormone system, your limbic system, emotional, right? It has all of that there. And so when you have a calmness or you can find a center and be present in the moment and just stay calm, or as calm as can be, your cortisol level will go down. So your metabolism of your body starts to be healthier and it keeps it in, in sync with itself. Now it's, that's a perfect world. So we, we have fluctuations all the time up, up and down, but if you tend to be a really high stress type A person with a lot of boom, 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 you know, go, 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 which sometimes I am right. <laughs> I have to work really hard on regulating that um, polyvagal nerve because as you know, I multitask. So I have to keep that centered so that I don't have that cortisol dump, which leads to all those other problems, yeah. right? Like weight issues and high blood pressure and high cholesterol and diabetes and yeah. congestive heart failure. And I could go on and on and on. <laughs> but people talk about the lack of predation now with humans. We don't have a real serious threat to our lives, but what we've replaced that with that, that occasional fight or flight because an animal's chasing us, mm -hmm. we've replaced that with chronic low level stress. Right. We're just always on. We're always at a low level fight or flight. We're always well, that way. So we have the general adaptation system in our in our body. So think of it as gas. We have gas. <laughs> <laughs> so we are always we're always in gas. And so what we're doing is we're constantly generally adapting to stress yeah. at all times. So we always have a signal either that's going on or off and in healthy us that is supposed to be off more often than on right but in society now we're in gas all the time so we don't tend to switch it off we just keep rotating it through right and it's like so the alarm is always on and always we shop on. when it's is... partially on it's like oh we're just gonna anticipate yeah. it so you're always in anticipation and we mode. shop for it because when the stress isn't there we right. come we pull something out of the file and right. start reviewing that right yeah. so you're it's so it's it's Eckhart Tolle writes, and if people have not read Eckhart Tolle, he's a hard read, but he's a great read. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he he talks about being present and being in the here and now and the importance of being present yeah. in the here and now. And um, even if you have two seconds to listen to his podcast um, that he's made on his books, fantastic, um, just about centering and being mindful and how it's not this, you know, that, um, you know, that... 1970s free love, you know, hope yeah. it, you know, that it's not that it's about no. really being able to regulate your body systems so that you are not um, falling apart or feeling panicky or feel, you know, that panic mode or that anxiety mode or agitation mode that leads you to let's have a drink, let's have 10 drinks or let's, you know, go smoke extra marijuana. There's, you know, it, it's about regulate enough so that those things are just nice things to do versus those are the go-to to fix the right. problem. Yeah. Because as you know, all those things actually enhance the problem to become worse. <laughs> it's a very vicious cycle. Yeah. Um, so, but just going back to that general adaptation system um, and the gas, um, you know, trying to get control over all that piece between sort of your head and your gut so that your your neurotransmitters that regulate your anxiety and your and your um your andropause, yeah. uh, that will help that because your men tend to be, they don't call it, they won't call out depression or anxiety. They're just agitated, frustrated, tired. No, they're still encouraged not to call it out. Right. They're still well, encouraged. The stigma is that suck it up. Right. Yeah. It's the suck it up. Yeah. It's like, what kind of stress could you possibly have? You're a man. You can't be upset. Right. Yep. But the problem is, is that for years, as we know, that just backs up on people. 
and it's obviously more allowed for women to be emotional because that's what we're seen as, but actually it's super important. And the trend of raising children as of the past 25 years has been much more about getting boys to be much more in touch emotionally and being able to express themselves and use their words and things like that. But it still has that, that stigma to it, especially in the older generations that men just don't seek out self-care. I want to go back to the supportive element. You talked about the social element with, with men and you you started with veterans and veterans obviously have their own uh, stimulus, their own history, their own stressors that non-veterans don't. Right. Participate in. Right. But the big thing about the military, the big thing about being a veteran is often that team concept. And men are are raised in a team concept. Mm -hmm. Often they're happy in the team environment because, first of all, the team diffuses some of that stress. And secondly, when you're with a group of guys in a team situation, you spend a lot of time in the moment. You know, your best memory. You go through the hard work of being on a team of being in the military. But then there are moments when you're just off to the side. And you're just in the moment with your with right. your comrades. I hate to use the term, but that's what it is. Right. And it's like men like that and enjoy that. That's why social is so important to them. It's basically that team environment. So so here's here's the interesting fact. I just taught about this in my class last week about the fact of so group therapy and family therapy started out of out of the military doing research out of World War One and World War Two in Vietnam. And Korea's in there, and it's always the forgotten war, but it mm-hmm. adds in there, but it, it had a little bit of difference. So as a quick story here, to your point, um, the difference between World War One and World War II for men, and I'm not excluding women, uh, I'm just doing it for the basis of this right. is to your point. Um, World War One and World War Two, in short, everyone went in in their platoons and battalions and their brigades together. Mm-hmm. And there's no man left behind. They all came back. If they got killed, if they got hurt, if it, everybody extracted out back at the same time. They went in. And so if 300 people went in, they all, unless right. someone got lost or something happened, everybody by and large came back out. And what they found when they were doing research on how to help debrief back then, before they knew it, it was, you know, shell shock and t- PTSD. What they would found was that the men from those two wars weren't needing to talk about their experience like the Vietnam war, Mm. because they had the universal shared experience, which we now know is the group is a group cohesiveness piece. And the men shared cohesion because those are protective factors. And there's 11 protective factors. Now I wish I'd had more time because we'll have to do this at another show, but um, there's 11 protective factors that hold groups together, particularly men, but it's the premise for all doing all groups doing well together and working as a team and cohesion and universal shared experience and installation of hope and bringing up and uplifting, whether it's females or men, that is the piece there. Now, the difference between what we found is when we went over and started looking at what happened in Vietnam, Vietnam shifted our ability to do really good group and family and individual work in in our field, in my field, because Vietnam had the anomaly on the board, which was one long war two, it was don't talk about it because you're a baby killer and terrible, awful things. Right. But people would go in initially in the first part of the war, the first few years, people go in and come back out. But by the time the war was in the full swing, men were being left behind. The platoons were being left. People would go in. Something would happen to 10 of them. They would be extracted and 10 more would come in that were new to the same, to the platoon, which breaks the dynamic of what was there as cohesiveness and universal shared experience. So now it was, now it was disconnected. So World War One and Two had the it's the perfect thing about the social norming of men together and and women. We know the same thing happens for women too because women sure. is how we've come to know that it's human nature. But Vietnam showed us that if there's a there's a disconnect because the dynamic and the connection of the cohesiveness breaks and the universal shared experience, although they might both be at war their experience isn't necessarily the same. And so if they can't share that and they have been left behind or they haven't come back together or something else has happened that's created some kind of perceptive trauma, then that creates a very different scenario of how a person functions. So from Vietnam forward, we've had a very big shift in making like that's why support groups work so well and AA and NA and all the different groups that are out there that help people. That's why meetup groups in the past decade 
meetup groups are a great thing. If you don't know what they are, they're the, you know, you go online and you, there's hundreds of them. And of course the pandemic killed it, but they're back mm -hmm. up and running random people getting together and creating groups to go hiking together yeah. and to go biking together and do art together. And it's all based on the premise of taking care of the connection and the interpersonal dynamic that needs to be there. And there's very specific men's groups and women's groups and then co-ed groups. But I think to the point of the men's health is that this is something so important because men don't seek out the nurturing that women do. So not to pick on women, but women are more likely to just find their niche and find their people and their tribe. Men need to have those pieces there because through this good longitudinal war times, 100 year plus, we know that that's what really yeah. connects people. Well, you go to Dunkin' Donuts a lot. Men are sitting around a table all the time. All the at time. Dunkin' Donuts. You that, never see that's women doing that. Shared experience. Right. 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 They just sit down and, and dump offload their stressors and you know right. mix their stresses. And there is that cohesiveness of the group. It's like I'm not alone in this. I'm not carrying this all by myself. And right. And know. and that's and so so what it does from a clinical perspective is when men sit around at the Dunkin' Donuts table like that, right? When they walk out and go to their lives for the rest of the day their cortisol levels are down. Mm -hmm. Their blood pressure is usually pretty stable. They're more likely to be productive in the day. They're more likely to have happiness or something good. Like there's all these yep. things that typically roll out of it. Yep. And so, so important to have that. And that doesn't mean that you have to just do, you know, men's groups. It's just connecting, finding connection. It can be co-ed, you know what I mean? So it's, yep. it's, it's not just, you know, women and men separate it's but it's so such an important piece to understand that you will come out of the gas mode the general adapt, adaptation signaling you'll come out of that mode the more connected you are and the more connected you are with yourself so that you're looking after like well there could be some other things going on here it's funny at a lower level the gym kind of feels that at a lower level at a lower level, level gym kind of feels that it yeah. kind of fills that kind of need yes you're not talking to anybody you're not but you're there canoodling sharing but you're sharing experience you're sharing right. the universal experience right. everyone's working out yep right and your social comparing well yeah but sometimes in a positive way oh yeah it's like oh, look at that guy absolutely look at what he's doing i can do that if yeah. he can do that i can do that exactly yeah, yeah. exactly yeah and and i think that you find more and more and i just as a gym note i found the trend in the gym this past year much younger like 16 17 18 year olds coming in groups and pods of girls oh, yeah. and guys coming yeah. in and working out together which i hadn't seen like that like one or two but like actual groups and doing workouts you know not just standing around talking to but each those other. have moved out of the schools because teams and stuff like that work right. out work out together but this uh, going into planet fitness or whatever you see this right. a lot more and you see the groups of a half dozen boys right in there working and it's it's a good way to do it too you know right Right. Because Absolutely. first of all, it's somewhat voluntary. I mean, I'm sure they're not being mandated to go to these nope. gyms. You know, if, if you're in the high school gym, you're probably required to be there for a team for a certain amount of time. But these guys are just going, let's go to the gym together. Right. You know. Exactly. Yeah. And I think so. So, you know, I know a lot of people are still still afraid of COVID, but by and large, things are back moving. People are back together, If you know. Yep. If you're vaccinated and I bring this up because people are still afraid. Yep. You could get COVID, but if you're vaccinated and I, I can't tell you how many people in the past month. Are there any people left who haven't had, had it? COVID. What? Are there any people left who haven't had it? Me. You haven't had it? No. Wow. Stop it. What? I know. <laughs> Don't jinx me. I'm not jinxing. It's Stop not a matter it. of jinx. No COVID for Dr. Kim. And of course, with the vaccination, it's relatively mild at mm -hmm. this point. And, you know. Well, that's what I'm saying, because people get mad. They're like, I'm vaccinated times three or times four for some people. Yeah. And, I, and I've had it three times. And I'm like, and my last person that did that, I'm like, are you licking doorknobs? It goes back to my, <laughs> stop licking the doorknobs. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you have not had people who've had it three times. I have had people that have had it three times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought the reinfection rate was extremely low. But remember, we've had this going on for... Three years, three I know. Years. Yeah. So you know, but we're then okay. Imagine all the people that had it that didn't even know they had it in the beginning. Yeah, I know. Just, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, my yeah. husband John. We, we talked had, about that at the beginning. I mean, I yeah. Now we figured it out. Like, oh, yeah. that's what that was. Yep. Yep. 
And I had a client that was really, really sick. The CDC the couldn't figure it out. But... January <laughs> before they even announced it. So, yes. CDC so. couldn't figure it out, but we had it figured out. Yeah. Well, it was yeah. definitely, you know, it was the whole breathing thing and no taste, no smell. So, anyway, we digress. Okay. Yep. So, the takeaway from today for men is find yourself someone that you trust that you're out there with or go look for good information for yourself or find a life coach or somebody that can guide you or do your own life coaching, but be more on top of the fact that, Hey, you have the ability to, you know, better your life, make your health better mm -hmm. by doing a lot more than you probably even think you can do by getting blood work, taking maybe a nice supplement or just getting it from foods that you might not be eating. I mean, it's that's just... a good goal. Go get some, go get a blood panel because yeah. you have to see your primary care, yeah. which is a good start. You get yeah. your blood panel and just some, if something pops up, you deal with it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But yeah. people are afraid. Yeah, that's all No, I understand. No, oh, trust so me. Like, oh God, yeah. I don't want to know. Oh, uh, I understand. Right. Um, okay. So because I have to wrap up because you have another show right behind me today. Um, next week, Michelle McAlizzi is going to be joining. I'm sure she'll have lots of stories about my interesting life because that's usually what she does <laughs> oh, to me. Yeah. So you'll be able to ask her about me and my life. We'll I'm dig sure. into that. But, um, but people that want to tune in, she's a great motivator. Um, she has her own. She has her own podcast. She she's out in the world. She's a great entrepreneur, leader, um, a very awesome woman in general. Um, she's going to be super fun to talk to, and um, and she'll be up bright and early out in Arizona talking to me next week at. 9.45 our time. Lots of great interaction. Some people watching the show today. Keep it coming. We love it. Yeah. Thank yep. you, guys. I'll see you all next week.